Thanks for checking out the City Church Podcast. We are so honored to have you join us, and we hope this message speaks to you in a powerful way. Learn more about City Church by visiting us online at ourcitychurch.org. Enjoy the message. God bless you. Welcome to City Church. So happy to be back. If, um, if you're a regular part of our church, I've been away. My name is Justin, the lead pastor. If you're new, God bless you, but so excited to be back with you today. Love you all. Missed you. Got some time away with my family, but so, so glad to be home and so glad to be back with you. I uh, want to take a moment, welcome all of our locations, Middletown, Bridgeport, Hartford, those of us that join us online. Can we just put our hands together and say hello to everybody? God bless you. Welcome to church. We love you. Welcome to church. So many exciting things that all of our locations probably mentioned, but next week, Baptism Sunday, I am so excited about this. We have never done this, okay? Live baptisms, all our locations on a Sunday morning. It's chaotic. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be a lot of fun. And so I encourage you, be here. Uh, I'll be sharing a message connected to Nehemiah and baptism, and so that's exciting as well. Just really excited to share that with you. But if you have not signed up to be baptized, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, but as a personal decision, you've never made that decision to be baptized, well, tomorrow, next week is your time, okay? And so one of the things we say a lot here is the first thing Jesus tells a disciple to do is be baptized. He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's what the scripture describes. And so if you're here today and you've never been baptized, I want to urge you, obey the first thing God told you to do. It might be a little humiliating. It might be a little embarrassing. It might be a little uncomfortable. God uses all of that in our lives, that humbling of ourselves to bless us. I urge you, be baptized next week, all right? Sign up at all of our locations. And then the following week, August 5th, is going to be a big Sunday. Turn to the person next to you and say, don't miss August 5th. Don't miss. Don't miss August 5th. August 5th, we start a new teaching series, and I have a really exciting announcement about the future of our church that I will save for August 5th. And so I encourage you, be a part of that as well. Have you appreciated this series that we've been in, Build the City, with the book of Nehemiah? Has this been good so far? I've been so encouraged. On my way home from our vacation on a plane, I caught up on all of the previous sermons and was just so encouraged. I just, I want to say as well, Mike, Ryan, all of those who preached the last few weeks, can we put our hands together? We love you. Thank you. Well done, man. Well done. We're in Nehemiah chapter 4. And I want to begin where we'll end. Verse 16, from that day on, half my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stood behind the house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he Built. We've been on this journey through this book, this Old Testament book about a Jewish exile who returns to Jerusalem under the blessing of a foreign king and rebuilds the walls of the city. And if you want to jot some notes down today, the title of this message is Use Both Hands. Can you find somebody around you, look them in the eye and say, Use Both Hands. Go ahead and do it with me today. Use Both Hands. You got to use both hands. Let's pray and let's open up our hearts to God's will. God, we thank you. I just sense the presence of your Holy Spirit in the room. I know that maybe for some of us, this whole type of church experience is new. For others of us, we've been on this journey for years together. But I pray wherever every individual finds themselves, I pray in Jesus' name that today you would speak. We open our hearts to you. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. Well, we got two weeks off. I got two weeks off on vacation with my family in Florida. My wife's family is from Florida, so we went down and visited them, but then we shot over to Orlando, Florida. And of course, if you have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 4-year-old, you got to try when you're in Orlando to get to... Yeah, you got to try. So we did it for a day. We did the Magic Kingdom for a day. We met our friends, Matt and Kate DeSisio, and their kids down there. Many of you know Matt oversees our Hartford location and moving also into our Springfield location. And so um, many of you guys know them. And, uh, and so we just had a party, had a great time just enjoying our kids and our family and friends. And, and it was awesome. But, uh, but we did take a day and go to the Magic Kingdom. And of course, we planned it out because if you go to the Magic Kingdom with little kids, you got to plan it out so you don't die, right? That's the whole thing. And so, and so we did plan it out. And my wife is a big, you know, Disney girl. And so she was insistent that we stay for the fireworks, which are typically around 9.15 at night on particular nights. And so we scheduled a night to go that the fireworks display was happening. And we waited out and spent the whole day there, the whole day there. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying we spent the whole day there. And, uh, and so in July, you know, in Orlando, anyways, um, he works all things together for good. And so at 9.15, uh, you know, the fireworks display is about to start and there's 10,000 people or so packed around the castle. And if you've ever been to Disney World and the fireworks display, Tinkerbell flies down and there's, it's just, it's pretty cool. And so my kids are all excited and the loudspeakers across Disney announce that due to inclement weather, the, the fireworks display is being delayed, okay? And there's no inclement weather. We're just standing there. We're thinking, this is ridiculous. Come on, let's start this thing. I want to go home. And, and, you know, and so we're waiting for a little while. And then just two minutes after that announcement, the heavens open, lightning, thunder, it starts pouring rain, okay? So just imagine with me, you know, 10,000 people from every nation on earth, right, gathered around the castle and it starts pouring rain. It was a crazy Disney stampede. I mean, it was out of control. Like, I'm thinking to myself, this is how it's going to go down. I am going to die in the magic kingdom having been trampled by other people trying to get out. And that was, I mean, we were like taking cover, running. We end up running into like a little boutique shop where they sell t-shirts for $55 or whatever. And we're over there. I mean, you know, and, and we're there and I, I, I bargained with the, the cashier to give me some plastic bags so I could rip holes in them and put them over my kids, you know, for, for like makeshift uh, raincoats. And so we waited out 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour. We're waiting for this rain to stop. And in Florida, typically rain is like five minutes, you know? And so we were like, come on, finish up. And so finally we just gave up. We said, let's just get out of here. And we walk to the monorail. We're waiting there. It's now two, two and a half hours, you know, past. And, and as we're waiting in line for the monorail, far away from the fireworks now, we can see them just a little bit over the trees going off, you know, couldn't see Tinkerbell, you know, but just got a glimpse of the fireworks. And I've just thought to myself, waiting in line with hundreds of other freezing people, cold from the rain and, and, and soaking wet, thinking to myself, this is not the way I expect my magical kingdom day to end. It's just not. And I think that's a great picture for life for many of us that in this world, there are challenges that are unexpected. In this world, your magic kingdom day often unexpectedly ends with a thunderstorm. That things in this life happen that we cannot predict and we do not know are going to happen, and we just have to roll with those punches. Now, some of the problems in life and some of the difficulties in life are self-inflicted, let's be honest, right? You know, it's like, it's not just that you can't pay your bills, it's that you've made, you know, 150 decisions that have led to the place where you can't, did I just get too personal so quick? 
Okay, yeah, it's, it's not that the relationship just magically fell apart one day. It's that you haven't actually invested in the relationship for the last 10 years. And so because there hasn't been consistent investment, there's been progressive decay. And now you find yourself with a relationship that's falling apart, right? And so yeah, we're just getting like real personal real quick. Some of you are like, dang, can we just talk about Magic Kingdom a little more. And so, and so, you know, this happens in our life. Just recently, I had a bees nest in my backyard. And I was like, I can take care of this thing, you know. And, and I realized I didn't have any bee spray. I had ant and roach spray. And I thought to myself, that'll be fine. <laughs> Not fine. So I, I spray the bees with the ant and roach spray. I think they actually talked to me. I don't know if that ever happens to you, but they were like, really? That's not going to kill us. Now we're angry. And they just attacked me. They, one of them stung me right in the face, right below my eye. I run inside and I'm like, I'm like, hey, I got stung by a bee. And my wife's like, let me take a picture. I'm like, <laughs> so she did. So I'll share it with you. Here it is. I'm looking real good there. Okay, take it down. Take it down. Take it down. Take it down. Okay, good. Yeah, so, you know, some of our issues in life are self-inflicted. And I bet if you took a few minutes, you could find a few self-inflicted difficulties that you're going through right now. But some of the issues in our life, some of the difficulties just seem to happen. They're circumstantial. You know, it's like the company downsized, you know, or, or you know, something just happened and it is what it is. But then many of our difficulties in life are found in a third issue, a third spiritually natured issue. Issues that are spiritual in nature. In fact, the Bible tells us that many of the problems that a believer faces in life stem from one of three forces. The first is what they call the world, okay? Now that seems pretty general, but in the context of the Bible, when it says the world, it means the broken systems of the world that are marred by sin. And so think of things like poverty. Think of things like injustice. Think of things like racism. These are the broken systems in the world that affect many of us. And so that's one of the forces that's often against us in life. The second one the Bible talks about is the flesh, okay? The flesh is this sinful inclination within you. It's that desire to lust. It's that desire for greed. It's that desire to, to, uh, to be proud or that inclination towards fear. That's the flesh. But then the Bible describes a third force that is against you that is powerful and present and we must, as followers of Jesus, be aware of. And that's called the devil and demons, spiritual forces that seek to keep you distracted, enslaved, and far from God. Now, the Bible makes this distinction between God and the enemy, okay? And Jesus says it like this in John 10.10. Look at it. He says, the thief comes only. Somebody say only. Only. Yeah, he's only got one intention, to steal, kill, destroy, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, this is so important because in this context, Jesus outlines for us the clear intentions of God. And so if you find yourself in a situation where you feel like you're being stolen from, where you feel like you're being attacked, where you feel like you're being destroyed, and you're wondering why is God doing this, friend, you've got to go back to the truth and realize that the issues you're dealing with don't stem from God. His intentions for you are clear. He has come that you may have life to the full. All right? It's been a few weeks, so you got to get a little crazy with me because I'll bottle up inside. Life to the full. That's God's plan. But the scripture also is clear that you and I are living, so important, living in the context of spiritual warfare. 
that this thing is raging in the invisible realm all around us. One author, John Eldridge, says it like this, until we come to terms with war as the context of our days, we will not understand life. And for many of us, we struggle to understand life because we haven't grasped the idea that the spiritual world is at war all around us. And so when the thief comes to steal or kill or destroy, you and I should not be surprised. This is the way that he operates. But Christ has come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Now, We turn to the story of Nehemiah we've been looking at for the last few weeks. It's an Old Testament story about a man who goes to Jerusalem and rebuilds the wall. Of course, this story has importance for us just as a historical piece in the puzzle getting to Jesus. And that's that's a critical element of the story to understand that this really did happen in real life. But there's another layer to this story that shows it as a prophetic direction to Christ, okay? If you know the prophecies of Daniel, you'll find that in Daniel chapters 9, 10, and 11, it speaks of the day in which a king will give a decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Daniel says 483 years to the day that that occurs, the Messiah will enter Jerusalem. And of course, we know that that's fulfilled in Jesus on Palm Sunday, 483 years to the day that Nehemiah received the command to rebuild the walls, Jesus enters the city. It's an incredible prophetic truth that the Bible affirms. But then there's a third level that you and I have to understand about the Bible, okay? And many of us, we read Old Testament stories and think they don't apply to our lives, but God in his wisdom has painted the New Testament realities into Old Testament history. In other words, the stories of the Bible in the Old Testament are there to be a physical picture of the spiritual condition of your life through Christ, And so it's critical for us to understand the story of Nehemiah on that level, all right? So in the context of the story, Jesus is the true Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a shadow or an illustration or a picture, a true historical individual, but also his life's history worked out in such a way that it showed Jesus. And so Jesus is the true Nehemiah who goes to the king, gets authority, enters into the pain of his brothers, and rebuilds the walls of an eternal city, okay? You see that? The whole story of Nehemiah images the story of Christ. Now, just as Nehemiah rebuilds the walls, God is giving us a picture of how with him we are called to rebuild the walls of our soul, the walls of our life. In fact, Isaiah 26, he says it like this prophetically. The prophet says, we have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls. And so God in your life is in the midst of a building project, okay? You may not realize it. You are in the middle of a construction zone. Your world is a construction zone. And through the circumstances of your life, God is building the walls of your city. And your walls are salvation. And so you are progressively understanding and experiencing the life and the joy and the peace and the power of salvation. And his purpose is with you to rebuild those walls, to build up walls in your soul. Okay, everybody tracking so far? Now, what we see in this illustration of Nehemiah is that as soon as Nehemiah begins the process of rebuilding the walls, opposition comes. As soon as he begins, the moment they begin working, there is opposition. And so, what we can learn from this story, and this is critical, what we can learn from this story is through the actions of Nehemiah to overcome opposition in the physical you and I can discover how to overcome the opposing forces in our lives. 
it gives us a model for how to live with an overcoming spirit, all right? And so go ahead and turn person next to you and say, well, actually, you need that. That's, that's, that's really applicable for you. You need that. And so as we dive into this today, you're going to see some of yourself. Are you ready? Everybody good? Balcony, you good up there? Everybody? Yeah? Middletown, everybody's good? Okay, here we go. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, when Sam Baladin heard that they were building the wall, he was angry, greatly enraged. He jeered at the Jews. Okay, now Sam Ballot was the governor of Samaria at the time, a, an opposing force in a neighboring area. And he said to the, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish, the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, another leader from a foreign nation. And he said, yeah, what, are, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Notice here that the very first thing the enemy does is mock the dream, right? He says, you're feeble. He says, the dream is ridiculous. If a little fox climbed up on that wall, it would fall apart. Now, most of us do not have two foreign leaders walking with us to work, discouraging us, right? That's not the experience of most of us. But what the scripture wants you to see here is that you have a sand ballot and a Tobiah in your head. That there is an inner dialogue within every individual, whether you consciously see it or subconsciously have not yet recognized it, there is an inner dialogue going on in your mind where a voice in your head is telling you that, listen, let's be realistic. Your plans are not that functional. Your hopes are not founded on a strong foundation. Let's be honest here. Deep down, I'm just not sure you have what it takes. That voice on the inside of you saying that those things are just not going to... Come on. I mean, you know how dysfunctional your family is? You're not going to build a healthy family. It's just not going to... Wait a minute. You know how many times you failed? You're not going to grow a successful business. Do you think that you can genuinely make a real impact in that person's life? Nothing's going to change. You might pray. You might do some stuff. They're not going to change. Nothing's going to change. See, we have a tendency, I have a tendency, I'll be honest, that something inside of me, when I hear those voices, rather than recognizing them as a deceptive opposing force that I should reject, I end up quickly becoming convinced that those are the voices of myself. And rather than saying, no, 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 I reject that voice. That's a lie. I don't receive that. Instead, when I hear those voices, I start thinking to myself, well, why do I feel that way? What's wrong with me? And I embrace that voice as if it was my own. One of the most important things that we can see in this text is that those voices are, in fact, a foreign invasion. And what you have to realize is that your mind is not a peaceful place where you can trust every thought that comes through it. Your mind is actually ground zero of the battle zone for your soul. That the battle begins to enrage your mind. It seeks to deceive you. It seeks to draw you away. And so what you and I must learn to do is replace the thoughts that come naturally with the thoughts that come supernaturally, to replace the things that I think myself with the things that God has revealed to be true, whether I feel them or see them or not. This is how the Apostle Paul describes it. Stay with me today. This is how the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, we use our powerful God 
tools, now those God tools he's speaking about are the gospel, the truth found in the good news of grace through Christ. We use our powerful God tools for what? For smashing warped philosophies. I know there's somebody in the room right now, you got some warped philosophies. Some warped philosophies about how life works. Tearing down barriers erected against the truth, fitting every loose thought, I love this, every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Come on, somebody. There's a structure of life shaped by Christ. And I got these impulses, I got these emotions, I got these thoughts, and they don't fit into anything. But I've got to learn to fit them into the structure of a life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready and at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. See, if you're going to understand how to overcome in life, you must recognize that the fight starts in your mind, and you must learn to take control of your inner dialogue. You might want to jot that thought down. Take control of your inner dialogue. Take control of your inner dialogue. I love how Nehemiah takes control of the dialogue in the story, okay? Here they are insulting him, mocking him, confusing him, and immediately the first reaction of Nehemiah is to pray and then to get back to work. Look at it with me in verse 4, right after the text we just read. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Listen to this prayer. It's a little raw. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Now we read that prayer. And if you're honest, as a follower of Jesus, is a little uncomfortable, right? Because you're like, dang. He wants to like, he's like, God, kill these people. You know? It's like, are we supposed to pray that way? You know, a little bit awkward. Now, many scholars have debated and wondered, you know, what's the essence of that prayer? How, how is that okay, you know? And they said, well, he's a governing authority, and so he's praying for justice, and he is, and that's true. But I think there's something else going on there. As I read that prayer, it seems to me that that prayer by Nehemiah is what I would call an ugly prayer. It's an ugly prayer. An ugly prayer is a prayer you pray when your heart is raw and hurting and frustrated and confused. It's an ugly prayer. In fact, there are many of us in the room today at all of our locations that you don't pray out loud because you're scared that you're going to pray an ugly prayer and you don't have all the right words. And so you say, I'm just not going to pray out loud because you think that God wants you to pray some formal, perfect, polished prayer and you have to use certain magic words. And what God wants to teach us through this text is that he accepts ugly prayers, that ugly prayers may not be clean, may not be pure, may not be even good, but they're honest and it comes from the brokenness within you. And so when you're in the middle of a fight with your wife, Rather than going to God and saying, dear precious Lord Jesus, beloved and graced, would you please endeavor to heal the woundedness of this bro? No, no, say, God, my wife is driving me insane. I think I married a psychopath. (laughs) Now, of course, I never pray things like that about my wife, but other areas in life. I do. You know, or God, my kids, God, this boss you gave me, I mean, she's Looney Tunes, God. I'm dealing with a person who is not functional. Help me, God, not kill this woman, right? Honest, ugly prayers. Why is that so important? It's so important because when you're honest with God, he can take the venom inside your heart, the frustration, the bitterness, the anger, and he can get it out of you. He can heal your heart. 
He can restore your soul. Notice that Nehemiah doesn't go with a club and beat up Sanballat and Tobiah. No, once he's prayed, he's processed through it, and now he can get back to work. He can get back to work. It says, we just got back to work. We didn't deal with them. We didn't have to because I prayed it through. I got over it, and now I'm able to function and get back to my work. Now, that's important too, by the way. When you're discouraged, when you find yourself in a funk, when you find yourself not able to move forward, depressed, one of the best things you can do is just go do something godly. Go serve at a soup kitchen. Go volunteer at church. Go invest in the life of another person. Go give a special gift to someone else. You'll find that doing godly work often breaks you out of that funk. And so that's what Nehemiah does to adjust the dialogue in his circumstance, okay? But the enemy doesn't go away. Look at verse 7. When Sambal and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and they all, what's it say? Yeah, there you go. Plotted together. You can participate. We're all doing this together. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. Now, this is very important. Their strategy after trying to discourage was to plot together. In other words, they tried to set up a series of events that would discourage Nehemiah. Have you ever had a day where you feel like you're being hit in multiple angles and it seems like something or someone is plotting against you. No, if you had a day like that. You know, you wake up in the morning, you had a weird dream, and you feel all out of sorts, and you get up, and your kids are like crazier than normal, and you get out to your car, and there's a flat tire, and you try to change it, and it starts to rain, and, and you finally get to work, and you're late, and then you get a phone call that somebody's in the hospital, and it's like, by 9 a.m., you're like, is someone plotting here? Like, what is going on? There are days like that. The scripture describes Job as an example of this. Job in one day, 7,000 of his sheep are burned in a fire. His entire livestock is stolen. He is financially destitute just in a day. And then he gets news that his kids died in a crazy accident. All in one day, plotting together. What is going on here? We're told that in these moments, the goal of the enemy, I'm talking to somebody right now, is to confuse you. That's what it says. He's trying to cause confusion. Confusion about what? Confusion about the intentions of God for your life. That's what. In other words, when those bad things start to happen, it's easy for us to begin to think, maybe God isn't for me. Maybe he really doesn't have life more abundantly for me. Maybe his purpose for me isn't really good. And we start to pull back. We start to question. We start to wonder, I don't know if I'm going to go to church this week. It's just not that important to me because there's a distance between your confidence in God's will for you and what you've experienced, right? And in those moments, you have to realize that what you're dealing with is not the will of God to harm you but the plan of the enemy to deceive you, all right? The plan of the enemy to deceive you. Look what happens next. Things actually get worse before they get better. Verse 10, Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We'll not be able to rebuild the wall. So now his own countrymen are like, this isn't looking good, Nehemiah. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So now he's got more rumors of pain. Verse 12, and at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, I love that, you must return to us. His own countrymen are coming to him. I like how Nehemiah records it 10 times, 10 times like I counted because it was really annoying me. They kept coming to tell me that we should quit. But look how Nehemiah overcomes the opposition. Verse 13, I love this. This is huge for your life. So in the lowest parts, somebody say the lowest parts. 
of the space behind the wall in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. I looked and arose and said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now you got to remember, this story is included in the Bible for multiple reasons, multiple layers, but one of them, the most crucial one, is to understand that this is an image of your spiritual life. And so he says in the text, first that he encourages the people to remember the Lord, because we have a tendency to forget. But then what does he say? He's got to do something strategic. He says, in our wall, there are gaps where things have broken down and where the enemy can enter without any problem. So the first thing we've got to do is control the dialogue. And then when the enemy keeps coming, we've got to deal with these gaps in our lives. See, just as you have a Sanballat and a Tobiah in your head that will try to discourage you, so in your soul you have gaps in your wall. You have gaps in your wall. And one of the most dangerous things about our life is when we live unaware of our gaps. Maybe you're sitting here today and if you're honest, you don't really know where your gaps are. That's a dangerous place to be because that's the very place where the enemy will attack you. Maybe you find yourself here and you say, you know, years ago my dad left and he left me, he abandoned our family and and I've kind of moved on, it wasn't a big deal, but it is a big deal and you've never really dealt with it and it forms for you a gap in your wall where you can't trust people. And so every time you get close in a relationship, you're protecting yourself and guarding yourself because there's a gap there that you've never dealt with. Or maybe you say to yourself, you know, I always seem to sabotage relationships, not realizing that early on you learned a broken vision for sexuality and because you never never took God's truth and redeemed your thoughts about sexuality. You keep going from relationship to relationship to relationship, not wondering, not understanding, why does this keep happening? Why do things keep not working out? There's a gap in your wall. You had an accident years ago, and you were in the hospital. It was a big mess, and now you find yourself in a battle with irrational fear. And every time something happens, you're afraid the whole sky is going to fall down. See, there's a gap. I wonder if you know where your gaps are. See, because when you don't know where your gaps are, the enemy will just go through that gap again and again and again and again, and it will dominate your life. So if you're going to overcome, it's time to post a guard in your gaps. Post a guard in your gaps. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means something specific for every gap in your life. One of the greatest prayers you can pray is, Father, show me my gaps. Show me the gaps in my soul. And then God will help you understand how to post a guard there. So, for example, one gap that you might struggle with maybe is is discouragement about your worth, right? Maybe you feel like you're not worth much. One of the best things you can do is find scriptures about who God says you are and pray them every day. I do this every day. I have a folder of scriptures that I pray over my life every day. What is that in my life? Those scriptures, that prayer, that's a guard in my gap. Or maybe you have a certain area of temptation. It might be... uh, Uh, drug addiction or abuse. It might be sexual temptation. It could be a thousand different things. Well, what do you do? Well, in my life for the last 10 plus years, I've had one person who's an accountability partner in my life. That means every time I'm struggling or tempted, he's struggling or tempted. We talk about it right away. We post a guard in the gap. See, I'm not alone doing it. I've got a guard in my gap. See, coming to church every week is posting a guard in your gap because you'll get distracted with the busyness of life. You'll go, oh, my work schedule doesn't fit, blah, blah, blah. And all this 
stuff happens, but you realize that if you are not careful, I'm talking to you right now, you'll start to drift from the purpose and the calling God has for you. And so sitting here for an hour and a half is a guard in your gap so that you don't wander from God's best. You got to post a guard in your gaps. You got to know what your gaps are. And then you got to post a guard. Do you have anybody in your life that's five steps ahead of you, a little bit more mature spiritually that you look up to, that you can look to for advice? If you don't, go find them. I know in my life, God has by his grace saved me years through a few guards that hang out in my gaps. And they help me see things I don't see for myself. You got to post a guard in your gaps. That make sense? Take control of your inner dialogue. You do it through prayer, through getting to godly work, and then post a guard in your gap. Now we begin with what we started with here, verse 16. From that day on, take a look at it. Half my servants worked on construction. This is so important. And half held spears, shields, bows, coats of mail. The leaders who stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand. Look at that, one hand. See it? Each labored with the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. So it's giving us a spiritual picture of how to overcome in life. This is so important, so important. How to overcome in life. Because I know that right now, You've got some issues. You've got some struggles. You've got some challenges. And if you don't at this moment, you will very soon. You will very soon. And so how do I overcome? Well, you've got to post some guards. You've got to learn to discern the inner dialogue and recenter it on Christ. But now he really gives us the essence of how to overcome. He says, in one hand, you've got to have a shovel. Where's, where's my shovel, my friend? Hey, thanks for the shovel. Appreciate that. In one hand, way to go. In one hand, you've got to have a shovel, Okay. Now, what's the shovel represent? The shovel represents diligence, okay? It means you've got to learn diligence. I've got a word for you today. God is teaching you diligence, all right? Diligence means you work hard. Diligence means you follow through on what you say. Diligence means you're consistent to your word. Diligence means that you show up on time. Diligence means that you follow through in your behavior. God is teaching you practical action that honors God. Some of us here, you know, the next step for you is to be diligent by getting involved in church, by serving, by investing your heart and your life. That's spiritual diligence. And so the growth in my life, the building of my wall requires that I do some digging, that I am diligent. I can't just be a spectator. I must be diligent, right? And so that's one hand. But in the other hand, God says, you don't just have a shovel. You also have, go ahead and bring out my next item here. Boom. I've been waiting to do that all week. You have a sword. You have a sword from Amazon.com. No, it's a, you have a sword. 30 bucks, not bad. You have, a, you have a sword, right? Now, we see the sword and we go, yeah, spiritual power. Huh. Well, actually, when you look at the context of the story, what you discover is the sword was not a representation of spiritual power here, okay? The sword in this context, uh, they didn't have an army that was big enough to stop Samaria or Jordan or the whole area that was going to attack them, okay? And so they say, let's post some guards and then let's pray that God fights for us because we are outnumbered and we'll never stop them. And so the sword does not represent my spiritual power. The sword represents my spiritual dependence. Okay? And so what is the sword in the life of the believer? It's prayer. 
I'm taking time to pray. It's worship. I'm setting aside time to worship. I don't feel like I'm doing anything. Oh, no, you're doing more than you realize. You're learning dependence, okay? It's humbling yourself when you do something wrong. It's confessing your need and asking God to help you. It's coming up for prayer at the end of a service. These are all acts of dependence. 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 Now, it's so critical that we learn dependence in our lives. And it's not comfortable at times. I just recently was at a prayer meeting with a bunch of pastors, and we had a time of prayer, and then we had a bunch of discussions, and we were early. It was like 25 minutes early we were going to dismiss. And I was like, oh, great, because I've got a little bit of a diligence bent, you know? I was like, oh, great, I'm going to get out of here early. I can get to work on some things. And the other pastor who was leading it, he said, well, let's just stay. We have 25 minutes. That's great. Let's pray some more. I was like, pray some more? Right now? i got to go home, man. I thought we were early. See, I have a bent sometimes towards diligence and not dependence. Dependence. So God doesn't want to teach you one or the other. He wants to teach you both because diligence without dependence leads to arrogance. If you're here and you're such a hard worker, but you don't know how to be dependent upon God, what you'll find is your success will eventually lead you to believe that you obtained it yourself and you will not have a guard in your gap. And because of that, the temptation, the enemy, the issue will come and will crush you in a moment because pride has blinded you from your need for God. So diligence without dependence only leads to arrogance, but I want to talk to the other people too. Dependence without diligence leads to spirituality that never builds anything. And some of us are in the room, you say, oh, Justin, I pray. Oh, Justin, I I love singing to the Lord. I love worshiping. Great. Have you ever brought your neighbor a meal? Oh, I don't got it. Have you ever signed up for a servant team? Have you ever? You've got to not just be one or the other. See, this is the secret. If you want to overcome in life, you can't just be diligent or just dependent. You've got to use both hands. You've got to use both hands. Hands, you've got to be both diligent to work hard and dependent upon God. And diligent to work hard and dependent upon God. And diligent to work hard and dependent upon God. And when you use both hands, you discover the power to overcome. That's what he's trying to show you today. Now that's nice in theory, but in function it can be a bit frustrating. Imagine Nehemiah with an entire army. Some of you are stressing out that I'm holding this like this. It's not that, it's not that sharp. It's all good. Imagine Nehemiah trying to work with a bunch of laborers who are carrying swords. I mean, what a pain in the neck. Can you imagine? Like, here's your shovel. Have you ever tried to shovel with one hand while you hold a sword in another? I mean, this is going to slow things down, right? It's like, yeah, I'm not that functional this way. You know, like, are you serious? This is going to take a very long time. Now, I could imagine that in that moment, Nehemiah thought to himself, wouldn't it be more efficient, God, and more effective for your purpose if you just removed Sambalat and Tobiah so we could put the swords down and get to work? I mean, couldn't you just get the opposition out of the way? And the truth is, sometimes God does that. Think back to the beginning of the story in Nehemiah chapter 1 where God just removes the opposition of the king and gives Nehemiah favor in a moment. He's able to just go right out and start building the wall, right? Sometimes God in our life does remove opposition right away, and I'm grateful for those moments. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't. And so the question that this story begs to ask is why not? Why doesn't God 
always quickly remove the opposition in your life. You've been praying for healing for a long time, and you're still not quite healed. Why not? You've been asking for financial breakthrough for a long time, and you're still struggling. Why is that? You've been praying to God for the right person, that spouse, that special someone, and it's been months, it's been years, and time keeps going by. You say, God, I've got some opposition in my life, and I've been asking you for a long time to get rid of that opposition, and it seems like you've forgotten. It seems like you're not working. It seems like you're not hearing me, God. Why are you leaving me with this opposition for so long? You've said that the purpose for you, or for me in you, is that I may have life and have it more abundantly, and yet if I'm honest, Sambala and Tobiah have been torturing me now for quite a while, and you just seem to leave them there, and everything seems to be moving so slow. Am I talking to you today? Everything seems to be moving so slow, because I only got one arm to work with, and the other arm, I got to hold this sword all the time. See, it'd be much easier if that depression stopped bothering me so I could just get on with my mission. It'd be so much easier if that lustful temptation left me alone so I could just get on with things. God, it'd be much easier if that addiction didn't keep come knocking so I could just move on. Why have you left me like this? The answer actually appears a little later in the story I want to show you because you need this today. Nehemiah chapter 6, look at it with me. It says, so on October 2nd, the wall was finished just 52 days after we'd begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Well, this is strange. It tells us in the text that they actually finished the wall faster than they had expected to if they hadn't had to hold the swords. That doesn't make any sense to the natural mind, right? We think, hold on, a bunch of guys working with one hand is going to go a lot slower than a bunch of guys working with two hands. It's not possible, Justin, that you got done sooner when you were holding the sword the whole time than you would have if you weren't. And yet the text tells us that that's exactly what happened. In other words, stay with me because God's trying to get your attention. The thing that they thought was slowing them down was actually the very thing that enabled them to go further. I said, I said the thing that they thought was slowing them down, God's trying to get your attention, was actually the very thing that God used to enable them to go further. See, there's some challenges in your life right now. Some from the world, some from the flesh, some from the devil. And if you're anything like me, you would certainly prefer God to remove them immediately. Certainly prefer God to just take those things off of your plate, out of your life. But sometimes when the opposition doesn't leave, God uses that opposition to teach you diligence if you've not been diligent. To teach you dependence if you've not been dependent. And he's in the process saying, no, 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 not just one hand, both hands. You've got to learn to be consistent. Get up, work hard, do what you're supposed to do. Pray like it means the world. Ask God to do things. Be dependent upon him. Learn diligence. Learn dependence. Learn diligence. Learn dependence. And as you do this, what you'll discover is the thing you thought was holding you back has gotten you further. And somehow in the miraculous, amazing, supernatural plan of God, God's way produces more. God's 
way. Oh, you got to see this in your life because a lot of your frustrations stem from not understanding this. God's way. He's trying to get your attention right now about that relationship. He's trying to get your attention right now. I said God's way produces more. Consider Joseph. You may know the Old Testament story. A young man who God gives great dreams, right? God gives him these massive dreams to be a great ruler, and yet his life pattern does not follow that plan. He has these great dreams of leadership, but what happens to Joseph? If you know the story, he's betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, accused of a crime he didn't commit, and thrown in prison. And yet in the midst of all that, what does God do? God teaches him diligence, and God teaches him dependence. And as he learns diligence and learns dependence, in one day, Joseph goes from slavery and from imprisonment to the highest position in all of Egypt and God uses him to save the world from a famine to prove that God's way produces more. Consider Paul, the apostle in the New Testament. You may know his story. He has a great passion to plant churches. The greatest passion of his life is to plant churches and encourage Christians in their faith. And so he goes to Ephesus, he goes to Corinth, he goes to Galatia, and he plants all these churches everywhere. And then he gets thrown in prison and he spends much of his adult life tied up in a crooked legal system, bound in prison. And I would imagine that he'd be incredibly frustrated saying to God, God, I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Corinth. I want to grow your church and encourage people. I'm stuck here in this prison. Have you forgotten me? And yet it was in that prison that the apostle Paul wrote two thirds of the New Testament. And we're still reading it and growing today as a testament that God's way produces more. You got to see this in your own life. Consider Jesus, who comes to this earth born in a manger, lives 30 years in obscurity, never performs a miracle, and then launches out onto the scene for three years, ministers to people, and then he's hung on a cross like a criminal. His enemies looked at him and laughed and said, his name will be forgotten in six months. No one will remember him. What a fool. But on that cross... Jesus Christ used both hands and he proved perfect diligence and absolute dependence. And when they put those nails through his hands into that cross, he showed, I'm willing to give both hands. I will be diligent and Father, I will be dependent. And it was through that sacrifice that seemed so obscure that he washed away every sin you've ever committed. He paid for the hell that you deserve. He provided you with a perfect record before your creator, washing you of sin and giving you the free gift of eternal life so that when you come to him, you don't come by your own merits or deeds, but you come confident in unmerited favor called grace. And when you receive him like that, you prove the very thing that he's been shouting over your life all along. God's way produces more, more. Will you trust him with your future? Will you live radically abandoned to his will even when you don't understand it? Will you stay the course and be diligent? Lean into him. Discover dependence. And as you do, your life will echo that same truth. God's way produces more. Would you stand to your feet with me at all of our locations? question for you. Is God teaching you dependence right now? 
Are you here doing your own thing, planning your own plan, working your own work, not dependent on God? Friend, don't make the circumstances humble you. Humble yourself. Come to him right now. Do you need to learn diligence today? You're not consistent. You're not faithful. Here's what I know. That Jesus promises that he'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new heart that has the power by his resurrection to learn diligence. The power by his resurrection to learn dependence. And if you will open up your heart to him, he will empower you to be what you cannot be on your own. And here's the good news all across our locations. The very spirit of Jesus is in the house today. And he wants to meet you. But it's an invitation. And you must respond. So here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to use both hands. And even right now, lift them up to Jesus. Both hands. Jesus, right now, this morning... You know every story, every detail, every struggle in my life. And right now I come to you aware of my need. God, I pray by your grace, enable me now to become aware of the inner dialogue and to take control of it. God, show me my gaps. And help me discover the right guard for the right gap. And God, teach me to live a life where I am dependent on you and diligent with the work you've put before me. Jesus, right now, no more wrestling matches. No more accusations against your intentions. I just want you. I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. I want to urge you this morning, as we sing today, this is your moment of encounter where his presence comes close and where you experience the confidence that God is for you. Come on, let's sing together, church. City Church seeks to reach New England and beyond with the life-transforming message of Jesus. If you have been impacted by this message or the ministry of City Church, you can help us continue to reach others by giving today at ourcitychurch.org slash give. For more information on how to get involved, visit us online or at any social media platform at Our City Church. We always appreciate you taking the time to rate or review this message on iTunes. Thanks again for listening to the City Church Podcast.